You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is Neil Townsend. Uh, Neil is senior market analyst at FarmLink Marketing Solutions, based out of Winnipeg, Canada. Um, Neil was good enough to join us to talk about some of what he's seen on his end for uh, farmers in Canada. We talked about food systems. Uh, You might remember that Neil actually appeared on an earlier episode of this podcast, one of the first episodes of the Perch Pod. So it was good to have Neil back. The usual housekeeping notes apply. Uh, Please check us out at perchperspectives.com if you want to learn more about our company and the solutions that we provide for managing and capitalizing on geopolitical risks. Check out latampolitik.com if you would like uh, thrice weekly updates on the geopolitics of Latin America in your inbox. Write to us at info at perchperspectives.com if you have questions, comments, concerns, anything on your mind at all. Uh, Take care. Um, Get a vaccine if you haven't gotten a vaccine, for God's sakes, and we'll see you out there. Cheers. Neil, it's good to have you back on. Uh, Top question on my mind, of course, is um, how how Canadians and grain farmers are dealing with the drought um, and the high temperatures. Obviously, in the United States, we've had some of that ourselves. Um, I saw actually, I think just today, it's July 23rd, the USDA was revising down corn estimates and wheat estimates. So how are Canadian farmers doing right now? How's the situation on the ground? How are you feeling about the drought? Just start there for me. Well, it's pretty negative. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I don't know. They like to talk about, you know, one in 50, one in 100, one in 1,000, those types of things. I'm not sure because I haven't been here all those years and I (laughs) don't really think the data sets are complete, Uh, but it's bad. And in my history of being in in agriculture and living in Western Canada, this is the worst drought I've experienced. Now, of course, Winnipeg, where I am physically located, is on the uh, extreme eastern edge of the prairie growing region. And, uh, you know, we haven't had a great growing season here, uh, but sort of as you move west, um, you start to get into even worse areas. So the, you know, in Saskatchewan, it's quite bad. Uh, Southeast Saskatchewan, not as bad. Uh, And then Southern Alberta, really bad. So, and actually the northern part of Manitoba called the Interlake, northern part of the growing region called the Interlake between our two Great Lakes is very extremely bad too. Red River Valley bad. So, you know, uh, prices have, have rallied, but farmers are looking at, in many cases, you know, uh, such small yields that it won't make a difference that, you know, higher prices. And so there's a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of concern, a lot of consternation. Uh, I, I do notice an element of anger as well. Um, you know, people are, are mad that, um, you know, that the drought is happening and, for some strange reason, people really want everybody to align with, you know, uh, that the drought is, is, is catastrophic. And I'm not denying that it isn't catastrophic, but it's just, you know, droughts are interesting things because there can still be some people who are some regions that manage to be, you know, closer to average or even at average. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so... But yeah, this is a widespread, devastating drought. Going into the season, were, did the did forecasts have any sense that something like this was going to happen, or did it really catch people off guard? You know, the the general forecast, like you know, the monthly or the summer forecast, you know, it said it was going to be drier than normal and hotter than normal. 
again, you know, just those words, what do those articulate to, you know? So I guess they're right in that context, but, you know, if you're saying that certain areas would get to temperatures like record temperatures and stay that way for five or six days in a row, and that, you know, rain would be largely absent for, you know, 25, 30, 35 days for certain areas, you know, I'm not sure if the forecasts told you that, but the forecasts have been, you know, saying that conditions would be trying. They just ended up being even more trying than probably anybody expected. And are there any prospects for imminent change for more rain for moderation? Is is the damage already done and you're just going to have to sort through it on the back end? Um, or is or are things going to get worse? Kind of how are you thinking about the, the rest of the season going forward? Well, one of the byproducts of the heat and the dryness is that crops have matured a little bit faster. So, mm. you know, this would be more or less the, you know, the final uh, quarter of the time for the, the growing season anyways, for most of our crops outside of sort of like uh, corn and soybeans in Manitoba. Um, and, you know, it's not unusual for harvest to start sort of on some of the early grains like barley or oats in, in you know, mid to late August. So, yeah, we've basically run out of time for the majority of the crops that are in peril. I mean, some rain now could stabilize what's there. Um, you know, and again, the modern seed technology, you know, you could get a little bit of a bounce on some things, but we're talking like, you know, a very small proportion of the crop could have a any semblance of a, of a miniature turnaround. I think the die have been cast and I think it's... Um, yeah, it's going to be negative. And actually, the forecast isn't promising either. So, mm. you know, the for, the forecast sort of for the next, you know, 5 to 10, 15 days is sort of like, you know, there's going to be storm systems moving through, but not sort of like, you know, the soaking type of rain that just kind of lingers over you for a couple days. And again, you know, maybe one of the worst things that could happen for the people who are expecting a, you know, uh, 50, 70, 80%, 100% of what they normally would get is, you know, you don't want to have a lot of rain at harvest, right? That deteriorates the quality. So I think, um, you know, the production is going to be down drastically in Canada. It's just a question of how much. Mm -hmm. I wish that we could bottle up some of the the rain and low temperatures that we've had here in the Southeast um, in the United States, because it's actually been an incredibly temperate summer and an incredibly wet summer, even for a place like New Orleans, which expects rain all the time and we're in hurricane season. I mean, I just moved here, but everybody I talk to on the street right now is like, we've never seen this much rain in our entire lives. Like it's crazy. So, um, you know, just, it just goes to show you that all these systems are, are interconnected, you know? Well, yeah, like, like one of the features of this year is being like a big ridge, they call it, that sort of extends from, you know, um, like the Great Lakes down through, uh, you know, cutting off like basically half of Iowa. And if you're on the right side of that line, uh, and down through like almost to Texas, when you're on the right side of that line, it was, you know, it's been very, very wet. So places in Illinois have gotten, you know, a lot of rain, Indiana, a lot of rain, parts of Missouri, a lot of rain. And again, I think they're still assessing, like generally speaking, you know, corn likes rain. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're going to have to try to figure out, you know, did some areas get too much rain? Did some areas, and, and then on the other side of the line, it's like a complete, the taps were turned off. So, you know, the northwest corner of Iowa, the southwest corner of Minnesota, you know, two key growing regions, they they didn't get much rain. I mean, you know, it's not a catastrophe there. They got more rain than the northern plains. But then, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, like 
just no organized consistent rainfall this year at all. And again, those areas are lower rainfall patterns typically than Iowa and Illinois, but you know, this has been a, an extreme year on both sides of that ridge. Yeah, but before we zoom out and think about sort of the global situation and how this affects maybe global supply or even national supply, um, how do you think about about what this data point now means going forward? Um, is it literally just get to next year and there's no way that next year can be as bad? Are folks starting to reconsider and thinking that climate change has actually changing things and that these changes are going to be permanent, that it's just not going to be reliable or consistent enough to to for forecasts to actually mean anything going forward? How are, how are farmers whose livelihoods are depending on this stuff dealing with what for most listeners of this podcast, like we all talk about climate change, but it's very abstract for most people, unless you're actually like trying to grow stuff or take it out of the ground, like sure you get inconvenienced by, by some of these things. But, um, you know, for a, a lot of the folks that you're working with and even for you, I mean, this is life changing existential stuff. Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I think like on the, on one level, you know, like so much of our current history, everything is highly politicized. Right. And so, you know, your standard average, you know, carry your lunchbox, go to work farmer in Western Canada is going to be generally upset about carbon taxes, is going to be a little bit, I'm not going to call them climate change deniers, but they're going to be in the, you know, and I'm talking this generalization, they're going to be in that sort of camp of like, oh, it's exaggerated, or, you know, we're not, we're, we're not to blame, you know, we're not doing anything that we shouldn't, we got to feed the world. And, we're, we're unfairly picked on. And, and there may be some truth to that. I'm not smart enough to, to get that all out. But what I would say is, you know, myself, you know, I, I 100% believe in climate change. Do I know exactly what it's, what's going to happen in the fall in any particular area? No. But what I do think, and you mentioned that in your question, was I think the volatility, the unpredictability of it all is going to be changed. So, you know, sort of an anecdote, like somebody phoned me, you know, like, about two, three weeks ago and said, you know, oh, there are some really good prices for 2022, like off combine 2022. So October 2022. And uh, should I take some? And I was like, well, you know, how's your current crop that would be harvested in, you know, September, October 21 doing? Oh, terrible. Like we almost have nothing. And so I just said, like, you know, I mean, like we're in drought right now. The drought ain't broken yet. Like, yeah, maybe we get uh, rainfall that comes, but what if we get all the rainfall uh, in October and November and we don't get any snowpack? Then the the water's been sitting there over the winter. And, and you know, one of the strengths of Western Canada is we get our moisture in a snowpack and then it melts when you need it, right? Like in February, March, and, and maybe even into April, right? So the water is still there when you're planting it, right? It hasn't evaporated into the uh, atmosphere. And I think like, you know, one of the struggles that some of the regions are having maybe is that, you know, the snowfall is more unpredictable. It might come, but it comes earlier, or it melts sooner. And, and you know, your planting schedule, uh, because it could still be, you know, like actually the very start of this year was uncharacteristically cold. And it took us a long time to heat up. So like, you know, our April and even into May was cold. So, uh, you know, not, we didn't have like, we had some frost days, but it wasn't like uh, too many killing events, but it was just like colder than normal. And then it heated right up. But I mean, you know, there was no snow to melt at that time anyways, because it was all gone. But yeah, I think it's just very unpredictable and highly volatile now. And, and I can't predict what's going to happen in 2022. But if somebody said to me, like, do you think we could have a multi-year drought? 
I would say until it rains, you're in drought. Yeah. What, what is the role? Is there a role for government support here? I mean, it, it seems like the sort of thing that, I mean, if you're just going it alone, if you can't predict these things and things are so volatile, people are probably going to give up. Is, is there some, are we going to see a move towards more government support for farmers in general to account for some of this volatility? Or is it going to be sort of every man and woman for himself out there? I, you know, two levels to that answer. The first is that we definitely have provisions in Canada when we have what we call an ag disaster or catastrophe kicks in and, and farmer, I'm not saying they're made whole. There's certainly some trauma, some financial trauma, but they, they, there's programs in place to kind of get them so that, you know, maybe they don't have a big income, but they're able to go back and plant the next year. They, they're able to have some money to pay their, their base bills. And, you know, there's, and it's a mixture of sort of provincial and federal programs. In terms of the second part of the question, which, you know, I, again, I think it's going to be the most important question that society faces going forward is, you know, like, what are the programs that, you know, we are going to ensure like a stable and safe food supply. Uh, and, you know, like we've chosen to, and I think it's the best means by which to do it, to have an incentive-based system where, you know, people are incentivized to produce because they can make a living and make money. They're not, you know, organized into a collective and told that here's the target. They're, you know, they're market market participants. But I mean, if it gets to be much more unpredictable and, you know, like people are, you know, something that you previously thought was a breadbasket area and it, it gets to be, you know, uh, hit or miss, like, you know, one out of every four or five years is a real you know, a shortfall, uh, you know, I think the governments have to step in and then collectively worldwide. I mean, again, I've always said there's not really a shortage of food per se in the world. It's more of a logistical question and a distribution system. But, you know, I mean, if if it got to a point where, you know, some of the, the grain warehouses of the world are they themselves running low, uh, you know, that puts a lot of other places at a more precarious state when when they sort of have uh, run into problems because it's not as easy to fill the gap if there's, you know, less uh, less stored grain in the world, right? So we're not really at that stage yet, but um, again, a lot of it is, you know, clouded by, you know, data that doesn't really mean anything, like that the Chinese have, you know, all this stored grain. There's no real proof that they have it. The market doesn't behave like that. Um, you know, th that the government sells some off every now and again doesn't really indicate that they have, you know, 50 to 100 times the, the amount that they're selling off over like a 12-month period. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, I don't think the world is relying on China to kind of like, you know, keep our, our plates full, but um, it's an issue. It is an issue. And I don't see the government really talking about it in, you know, like there's a lot of other things that are happening that are getting a lot of attention, like the wildfires, you know, you have your wildfires mm -hmm. in, in Oregon and California and places like that. And we have our wildfires in Manitoba and, and BC and all over. And so, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, this is an impact of, of global climate change. we got to do something to mitigate that. But, you know, I don't, I, you can't control lightning strikes. <clears throat> At least not yet. Uh, I wouldn't put it past human beings to try. For all for all we know, they're going to start creating weather systems. Um, well, they do like a, a lot of countries like to you know seed the air for rain. And when I lived in Thailand, uh, the king, uh, the previous king, he was uh, active in in agriculture and and had a very um, you know deep connection to 
wanting uh, Thailand to be very self-sufficient agriculturally. And, and one of their schemes during years of, uh, of hardship with the rainfall was to sort of seed the rain. And it's an actual technology. I mean, you know, I, again, I'm not sure, not read up on enough to know if uh, that's the answer, but certainly nobody's tried that in Western Canada. I don't know if we have the means to do that. Yeah, I don't know, but it, it kind of, I mean, with all this technology that we have floating around, I mean, we're probably going to have to start thinking and I mean, we're going to have to rethink the way we deal with water and weather systems in general. It, it feels like that, that change is definitely coming. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I am an optimist and I believe in technology and we've seen a lot of improvement in technology. Like, you know, if we were to have a drought like this, like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, I mean, the devastation would have been even greater, right? Like hmm. uh, maybe not right in the core area of the droughts. It's pretty complete there, but I'm talking about these sort of fringer areas where again, the weather has been less than an ideal in all of those, but you know, this, the modern seed technique t technology and the modern farmer te technique and skill you know, these crops can be shepherded under less than ideal circumstances for a long period of time and still yield pretty good. Um, you know, and again, if this is an actually like a one in a hundred or a one in 500, you know, year drought, I mean, you'd say we're going to be pretty well off because we have a lot of technology. It's, it's that concern that we've been talking about, though, that it won't be such an anomaly, that it will be a reoccurring pattern unpredictably, right? And I mean, I would say that you know, it's, it's uncommon to have a uh, back-to-back droughts mm -hmm. uh, in growing regions. You know, it does have, again, and we're not talking about, you know, like trying to grow wheat in Saudi Arabia or something like that. We're talking about, you know, the traditional wheat belts around the world, like, you know, China, uh, Canada, even in Australia, they they have droughts quite often, but they don't always have, you know, droughts for one or two or three years in a row. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, we can't predict it. I mean, until it rains, it's a drought. And I think in the 1930s, you know, when they talk about the Dust Bowl, that was one of those areas where, you know, one of the things that set it back was a, was a multi-year drought, like uh, something that extended over a period of two or three or four years um, where, you know, it was very hard to grow a sustainable crop and, and people, you know, had to get up and leave and, and go to the West or whatever. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that example up because I, f I feel like the that example also pinpoints that, you know, it's not like climate change is creating all of these things. The idea that you're going to reliably and predictably grow the same yields over and over and over in relatively the same places is actually <laughs> an act of supreme human hubris. Like uh, we can't control the rain. We can't control the weather. The thing that climate change is doing is it's coming in and making something that was already um depended a lot on chance and a lot on probability and a lot of things you couldn't control. It's making it even more volatile. And to your point, like humans can adapt, we can overcome and survive some of these things, but at a certain point, maybe the volatility outstrips our ability to adapt or, or maybe we, we solve it all. I'm not sure, but, um, yeah, it's, it's not a recent problem. This is something we've been struggling with <laughs> as, as a civilization for centuries. Right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you, you mentioned the word water, I think, you know, it's not hard to be, you know, somebody interested in geopolitics or somebody interested in agriculture or somebody interested in just, you know, the economy and say that, you know, water is, is a, you know, a humongous predicament, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, like, how do you solve the problem in the Western United States? Like, you know, if, like, to get to the level they're at right now with both groundwater and river flow and dams and energy and all of those kinds of things. And even drinking water. I mean, it doesn't look like it's a situation that's going to be solved in, you know, 
one 12 month period unless they get pretty lucky. Right. And yet, I mean, you know, the development and economic development and the building up of the popular, I think, I mean, I, I think I read that Utah is one of the fastest growing states in the United States. And it's one of the states that has, you know, the least amount of supply of, you know, fresh water in it in, in terms of, uh, you know, a growing population. Now, again, I'm not saying that people can't share with them, but I'm saying like, you know, you run into a, a hurdle there and, and you're seeing more and more of that around the world too, where there's a, a competition for water resources between urban populations and the rural populations. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a tension. It is. And it's, it's one of the things I think that is hard for people to wrap their brains around because a lot of times, a lot of the things that look like geopolitical tensions uh, or political unrest or whatever stupid euphemism newspapers like to use to describe what's going on because I don't really want to dive in. A lot of times it really does come back to either water insecurity or food insecurity or both. If you think about where we've had you know, social unrest, political protests in the last, um, let's just call it the last two to three months. If you want to go on, on down the list, you've got Cuba, Haiti, South Africa, um, Nigeria. What all of these countries have in common is um, they've been disproportionately affected by high food prices. They have low food insecurity. People are worried about being able to put food on the table. And then that expresses itself in all of the sorts of political unrest that we're seeing in general. So it's it's one of the reasons I try and keep my my finger on the pulse of these things, because you can we can talk macro all we want. We can talk about abstract geopolitical forces all we want. But ultimately, the thing that actually gets people in the streets, that gets people overthrowing governments, um, is when they don't have access to food. Is when these things is when these systems fail and shut down, and there's no answer. And I, I was a little afraid we were getting to that point. If you look at sort of global food price indices, mm-hmm. everything is way up. We haven't been at these levels since 2014, and we're starting to hit levels of 2010, 2011. Are, are you? Do you feel like we've reached a top? Or are you concerned that we might be be going up from here, especially considering some of the drought conditions that both the U.S. and Canada and South America too, which we haven't even mentioned, are dealing with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's been some positives, like the European Union had a little bit of a bounce back crop, so they got a bit bigger crop. And they're, uh, you know, again, they're one of the larders for the world in the sense that they can export more when when sort of, you know, uh, there's a gap in other exporters. Uh, Ukraine's going to have a good crop. But generally speaking, I think that, like, you know, what happens in the year where, you know, we stumble and I'm not talking like a stumble like this year, but like, say next year, you know, we don't like, we have to replenish our own stockpile. And then if, you know, if, if Ukraine and Russia have a a drought or something like that, and then it's, you know, more of the major exporters. Um, And I think, I, I think I mentioned the last time we spoke that, you know, people forget that the Arab spring started by a man in Tunisia lighting himself on fire due to bread prices. Like, Mm -hmm. and and people think, you know, there's a difference between like starvation, like sort of, you know, a situation like Yemen where, you know, it's, it's inexplicably bad. And like the food is just not getting to the people versus where it's, you know, the, the billions of people who would be like, you know, if they don't, they're what they're earning every day, a high proportion of it goes to buying food. And if food goes up, you know, five, 10, 15% in price, you know, their wages aren't going up that much. And I mean, you know, they, they become food precarious and, and that's very unsettling in, in a lot of these economies or, or countries around the world. And, uh, you know, it's a very different reality than it is, is here. And like, I think South Africa, you mentioned that, and it was like, 
Yeah, sure. People were stealing TVs and stealing stuff like that when sort of the rage got into like a bit of a looting. But people were also breaking into grocery stores and just stealing food, you know, like and they weren't stealing food because like, oh, you know, I, I want free food. It's because, no, I want food. And, you know, this is a challenge for a lot of governments around the world. And and, um, you know, I, I, there's no quick, easy answer because. On the one hand, I think the productive capacity of the world for producing food has never been higher. But at the other hand, you know, if you look at Canada and the U.S., which are two of the countries with probably the most, uh, you know, technologically advanced food systems, there's other countries that are maybe more impressive. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the Netherlands pound for pound is like, mm. you know, they can produce way more food, uh, you know, in the space they have than we're doing. But I would say that we don't, we don't want to see this happen in, in Canada and the U S and, and the question going forward is how regular of an event will it be? And again, we might look back on this in 2030 and say, I ah, remember 2021. That was a, what a crazy year. Since then we've, we yields have gone up 20% and we're, we're flying, but we might also look back and say like, that was the beginning, you know, of more unpredictability, more volatility and uh, less certainty. Yeah. And again, and those aren't healthy conditions for, uh, agriculture and those are definitely not healthy conditions for uh, governments and, and countries around the world yeah and for all we know i mean bread baskets are not set in stone like it, what what is a bread basket today might not be a bread basket in 10 years might be a different bread basket in 10 years after that if and this is why i mean when you look at sort of abstract macro forecasts i think i when we met a couple of years ago when i was speaking um in saskatoon if you look at a map at what the projections are for how canada is going to do in aggregate with climate change looks really good because you, you, know, you, you fill in the entire map with the shade of green that says, oh, your yields are going to increase by X percentage. But that doesn't mean that the farmers that are yielded today are the ones that are going to actually um, have those yields. It might be that the bread basket moves a little bit and whoever happens to be owning land where the rain patterns change or where things get better are the ones that are going to be going forward. So even, even countries like Canada, like Russia, like the United States, which you know, relative to a place like Egypt or a place like South Africa, are well equipped to deal with climate change, there's going to be a lot of dislocation um, probably on the ground. Things are not just going to stay as they are and increase steadily. That's not the way this stuff works. No. And, um, you know, one thing I've noticed, again, this is, I guess, anecdote because I, I'm not an expert like yourself, and maybe you can comment on it. It just seems like when we see these sort of predicaments happen, the response, like internally, domestically in countries, you you see the hostility and anger towards whoever's in governance. Mm -hmm. But you also tend to see an increase in hostility and belligerence, you know, in, in between countries. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like, again, I can't for any particular reason see, you know, there's a lot of issues between India and China, but, you know, is like they're fighting in a very remote region. Now, does that region become, it's always been geopolitically important, but does it become more important because of shifting weather patterns or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and again, it just seems like the level of cooperation in the world, you know, even with the pandemic and things like that, we're not helping ourselves because, you know, I, I would argue that cooperative behavior is probably the best solution for the globe. And it seems like in, you know, the last few years, both internally and externally, Cooperative behavior seems to be in a more finite supply. And this is what I mean. I think a lot of times it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what causes problems between nations. But India and China is a great example. 
I mean, India is downstream the Himalayas and they're depending on snowpack and glaciers and all these other things. And the Chinese need all the water that they can get as well. And they're starting to divert some of those water flows. So what you have there is India and China, which for a lot of different reasons should probably be on the same team um, or at least have interests that are not clashing directly. But when it comes to the most important thing, um, they actually really aren't on the same page. And I think you're going to see that more and more. There's going to be more and more global competition. Um, this, you know, this is true of COVID-19 too. If China hadn't felt um, so suspicious and so scared about looking weak on the global stage, and some of the reasons it felt weak and, and scared were legitimate, some were less legitimate, we don't have to argue about it. The fact was they didn't want to tell people what was going on with COVID-19. If they had just been open and clear, this is probably just an epidemic in China. It doesn't become a pandemic, but because there was this culture of fear and no, we can't look weak in the context of uh, trade negotiations with the United States, um, you get the situation where nobody's talking to each other. There is no trust and things mushroom out of control. And it goes to your point, like we produce enough food to feed everyone on the planet, probably two times over if you actually diagram it out. It's just there is such level of waste, such level of greed. The systems aren't built to get food from where it grows to where it needs to go that you get, um, you know, however many millions of people are still living in hunger. And we would like for people to, to be able to cooperate, but unfortunately that's not how international relations works. It's all, it has generally been competitive. And unfortunately I think we're entering a more competitive stage rather than a less competitive stage. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I would say, you know, food insecurity isn't just something that you, you know, in the old days, you know, your mom would say like, eat, eat the rest of your food because there's starving kids in whatever country. Mm -hmm. I mean, food insecurity is a reality in Canada and the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of people are living a precarious existence when it comes to having enough, you know, they have to choose between like housing or food or choosing between electric and, and those things and food. And, and again, you know, I, I think when we're talking about inflation and transitory inflation and that kind of thing, like, I mean, again, I, I'm not a macro eco economist. I, I don't know, like, you know, yeah, I can see, oh yeah, used cars, they've really added to the inflation because you know, the rental car companies didn't buy a lot of cars. So yeah, I can see how that sort of goes out of the system as you go forward because, you know, mm -hmm. they buy more cars and then there's more supply and blah, blah, blah. And it drives the price increases down. But for food, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, like one thing they always say about food is like menu costs, you know, like once you increase the, you print up the new menus and you increase your prices, I mean, you're unlikely to go back and, you know, six months later and, and take the menus uh, out and, and reprint the menus with lower prices. You know what I mean? You can accomplish some things with, I guess, specials or whatever, but, you know, I, I think that the pathway is up and in my opinion, and like, again, I don't have the proof in front of me or anything like that, but I would say that the, the pace of, of food cost is going up faster than the, than what wages are going up, even with these like significant increases at, uh, at sort of, you know, like, you're a Starbucks barista or you're working at Amazon and now you're getting 15 or 16 or $17 an hour. Like, like that was sort of a pent up period where, you know, prices had gone up and, and being like, you know, sort of like, um, you know, uh, I, for lack of a better term, but like, a, you know, like, a I, I don't like the term unskilled worker because the barista is very skilled at what she does or he does. I mean, there, I certainly couldn't whip up a coffee like that, but uh, with all the things that people say, but I mean, it, it's just, you know, I think that was long overdue to kind of boost those wages up. But I mean, I think there's another category of people who are, you know, like teachers and, uh, you know, 
dental assistants and like guys who work in car dealerships. And, you know, there are two, two income families with a couple kids at home and, you know, they're making X amount of money. And I think that if they were to keep track of their budget, they would see that over, over the years, their, their amount of money that they're spending on groceries and eating is, has gone up faster than their wages has gone up. Now, is it a huge proportion of their income in North America for people lucky enough to be in the middle class? Probably not. But I think, um, you know, if you're, if you're starting out nowadays and you've bought a house in certain markets and the mortgage is higher and all of that, then, you know, your free cash flow is lower and, and, you know, like, yeah, it's expensive to live. That's all I'm going to say in North America and Europe as well. And expensive to live well. I mean, to your point about there being food insecurity in the United States, it's not just about access to food. It's about access to quality food and the declining quality of food. I mean, in the Southeast, before we had the COVID-19 pandemic, it's been an epidemic of obesity. I mean, you look at the rates of, of adult and even child obesity in, in many states in the Southeast. And I'm picking on the Southeast because in some of these states, it's over 50%. It's not like the Northeast right. is that, it's not like they're that much skinnier. I think it's like in the thirties or forties, it's still really, really bad. But part of the reason there is that low and middle income folks, um, you know, they're trying to get the cheapest thing possible. And the cheapest thing possible is probably the, the Big Mac at McDonald's or whatever other fast food option they can get. Um, if you're middle-class, you know, upper income, um, yeah, uh, food costs are going to eat into your budget and maybe it's going to cause problems for, for you, but you're still going to go and pay for real vegetables and real fruits and real grains. Um, you're going to go to nicer restaurants that actually, you know, put things together rather than just a bunch of processed foods and simple sugars and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's something that there's a connection there also between how unhealthy, you know, large segments of society. I'm, I guess I'm speaking mostly about the United States now. I'm curious if this, if you feel this resonates in Canada, but how unhealthy um, large swaths of the U.S. population are, how they're not taking care of themselves. And it makes sense. They don't have access to food. Yeah. They don't have access to health care, um, all these sorts of things. But then you get a pandemic on top of it. And probably some of the reason that we're not effectively dealing with the pandemic is because we don't have a culture of taking care of ourselves. Uh, nobody prioritizes health in that way. And I don't know, it, it says something disturbing, I think, about the future of the country and where we're going with some of these systems. Yeah, like, again, I often think that, you know, the U.S. is the the spear tip, right? Like, you know, you see things there that are sort of being masked in the rest of the world. And, you know, I, I think if you look at, say, the pandemic and you look at the two, like the geographies that have been the most adversely impacted are sort of like South America and North America, right? Now, lots of people are, you know, maybe we're going to catch up in India, we're, uh, we're going to catch up in Indonesia, we're going to catch up in Africa, unfortunately. But, you know, like... I think that, you know, obesity and, and all of these things and like eating an unhealthy diet. And, and one thing I would say is that, you know, the working, the working class, one luxury they don't have is time. Like yeah. everything takes them more time. Like, yeah. you know, they, they talk about food deserts. Like I want to get some healthy food. Oh, there's no grocery store in my neighborhood. I have to travel further. Like to do their jobs, they've been priced out of working close to a lot of their jobs. Right. And, you know, you look at places like, like Honduras and Guatemala and, and you look at even like a lot of the, the people who are fleeing to try to come to the United States. And I mean, I don't, like I say this without any judgment in my heart, it's an observation, but you know, a, a significant proportion of them would be close to being in the obese category. Like, you know, 
and it's it's the same pattern there like they're poor they don't have access to uh, healthy food they can't afford the healthy food they have to eat in a more convenient fashion because they're working one or two jobs or you know it's hard to get what they need and uh, I just think like you know we are paying a price for that but again I think that also is something that when you travel around the world nowadays you it's like the Americans don't stand out as much as they used to. That's all I'm going to say. You see bigger people, uh, you know, more evidence of, you know, again, I, I don't know if big and, and health go hand in hand, but, you know, you just say like maybe the eating styles have changed or something like that. And and that's one thing we do probably have to address. Like I, I think for some of the people in the higher income categories, uh, you know, the pandemic and the working at home, you had the luxury to work at home or I had the luxury to work at home. And, you know, you could explore your sourdough bread and you could explore, explore all these recipes and get to be, you know, quite good because you had a little bit more time. Uh, and, and, you know, you still could phone in Uber Eats or, or you know, all those things and, and get somebody else to make you something relatively healthy or whatever. But I think for people who didn't have the luxury of maybe even having their job because they lost their job and then, you know, they live in a place where the grocery stores are not as conveniently accessible. I mean, you know, their health might have suffered from that, right? Yeah. Um, well, very uplifting stuff here. Let, let's close out. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about um, was when, I, when we met for the first time, God, was that 2019? It feels like a decade ago. Um, Canada was right in the middle of a of a spat with China over canola, and China was finding all sorts of quote unquote problems with the quality of Canadian canola, and it was on the top of a, a lot of Canadian farmers' minds. I think uh, looks to me like China's buying again. Is that the experience on the ground, or have people forgotten that China's not a, a reliable customer from that point of view, and that things could change very quickly? Or were the lessons from 2019 learned? Do you think? Well, the underlying issue is still ongoing. Like the CFO of Huawei is still undertaking a uh, extradition hearing in uh, Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they, they did bounce back in 2020. Uh, for sure, they bought more physical canola. They bought more canola oil. Um, but as far as like the headlines are concerned, like they're still, you know, Richardson and Viterra, two of the larger companies here are still sort of on a naughty list. Um, and I would say like going back to like all of our conversation, it's, it's unpredictable and volatile. And, you know, you're again, much, much more of an expert than I am on China, but, um, they seem to be in a more belligerent phase and not, you know, they, they want something. I'm not sure what it is, but if you, if you somehow run a, you know, you don't uh, pay heed to their importance in their mind, then you're going to suffer. So Australia got booted from uh, the barley trade because of some transgression. And, you know, now I, I see like on the stock market, you see like, you know, Chinese listed companies are are being really detrimented in, in China. And then that's sort of bleeding through to like Baba and JD and those other guys in, in New York. Um, and, and, you know, the whole issue with Taiwan and, and, you know, like, it seems inconceivable to me that they would do that, but it, it's more tangible than at any point in my lifetime. And I just think when it comes to like a, a small country like Canada, and that's the thing that I think you really have to realize is that from a Chinese perspective, one thing that I think does chagrin them is that 
Canada isn't that important. Like know your place, like just stay in Australia. You're not that important. Like just stay away. You know what I mean? Like we don't, we don't want you telling us how to pick cotton in, you know, Xinjiang, hmm. you know, or like, uh, we, we want, like, you're not giving us the respect because we are infinitely more important and powerful than, than you. And then that may well be true, but it's just, again, it goes back to what I said about sort of like the collaborative cooperation. Like, I mean, I don't quite understand that a country that has such a factory of producing things that they want to sell to the rest of the world um, would want to really undertake trade in this fashion, like how it ultimately benefits them going forward. Um, you know, I think it's going to encourage a lot of people to, to set up, you know, operations in Vietnam and, and Cambodia and Indonesia and Malaysia and, and India and other places. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all unfolds. But for now, I think that won't be the main problem for Canada this year. The main problem will be we just will have a very small pile of stuff to ship to anybody. So, uh, you know, the shortage will sort of cure the problem of trying to find markets. Right. All right. Well, in that case, we'll We'll think good thoughts for rain and uh, we'll look forward to having you on sometime again in the future. Neil, take care. Yeah, for sure. Thanks a lot, Jacob. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or in any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.